0: 30, 500, and Do you know what that describes? Those four numbers describe a destruction that is beyond human comprehension. One, thirty, five hundred, one hundred and fifty thousand. 500, One earthquake in the middle of the ocean, a wave 30 feet tall traveling at 500 miles per hour, and you know what the last figure is, don't you? A body count of 150,000 people. That is a destruction that is beyond our ability to even put into words or to comprehend. And the videos that you see on the, on the television set that have been taken in these places where you see the water coming in, those are not videos taken at ground zero. Nobody taped that. Those are videos taken where the destruction was not like it was right next to that earthquake. Nobody walked away with a videotape in their hand at Ground Zero when that happened. 150,000 people. Friends, put that into perspective. That is a huge number. It is, by the way, only half of the number of people who will die this year by abortion alone in our country alone. That is another destruction that is beyond human comprehension. But let's not minimize the 150,000 people who have died. There are two football games being played today, one right now and another one this afternoon. In those two stadiums, which will be packed to capacity, those two stadiums together will be less than 150,000 people. Two football stadiums full of people in an instant die, are plunged into eternity. And whenever something like this happens, the question always comes up. It is inevitable to see it raised. If God is all-powerful and God is all-good, then how can something like this happen? Either God must not be completely good, if He is all-powerful, or He would have stopped it, or God must not be all-powerful, but He could be all-good, and He couldn't stop it. It doesn't matter whether it is a mudslide that takes out six homes and six people, or whether it is an earthquake that takes out 6,000 people in India, or whether it is a tsunami that plunges 150,000 people into eternity. The question will inevitably come up. Just about a week and a half after that event, I was watching on Fox News the program Hannity and Combs. It is hosted by a conservative and a liberal, and they will bring on a guest who is either a conservative or a liberal, or sometimes doesn't take a political position, and then he becomes fodder for the piranhas, and everybody attacks him, and he hops up in the air, and then they get done with him, and they put on another guest, and then they're attacked from both sides, and on it goes for an hour. I love it. And I was watching that, and they had Reverend Franklin Graham on, and they were interviewing him because his ministry, Samaritan Purse, is one of the largest, if not the largest, Christian ministry, relief ministries in the world. Millions of dollars they're bringing into the area that has affected these tsunami victims, and of course, as somebody who is who is overseeing one of the largest relief ministries, Christian relief ministries in the world, they had him on to describe what he's doing, and and then I could almost see it coming. The liberal, Alan Combs, asked the typical, age-old theological, philosophical question: If God is good and God is all powerful, how could He allow this to happen, or why didn't He stop this from happening? And just as predictable as the question is, the answer is equally as predictable. Now, Franklin Graham is like his father, Billy Graham. He is an evangelist. He is not a theologian. He is not a philosopher. And when it comes to getting relief and the gospel to poor in hurting countries, there is no Christian organization, I think, that I have seen, that does it better. There are a lot of large Christian organizations that give relief. There are a lot of large Christian organizations that evangelize, but few combine the two with the excellence and the reach that Franklin Graham's ministry has done. But whenever you ask a theological or a philosophical question of somebody who is neither a theologian nor a philosopher, you're going to be disappointed in the answer. So the question came up, and I waited with bated breath the answer, but I could have almost predicted it word for word what was going to be said. And he said something to this effect, and I'm quoting as near as I can remember. He said, Alan, I want you to be certain about one thing. God did not allow this to happen. God did not cause this to happen. It is the devil who is the author of death and destruction. It is the devil who is a murderer. God gives life. The devil takes life away. God is a loving God, and He sent His Son, the Lord Jesus, to die for our sins, so that if we would trust Him, we would be saved from our sins. And what this tsunami reminds us of is that God, that at any minute we could stand in the presence of a holy God, that our life could be snuffed out like that and we could be standing before Him and we need to be ready to stand before Him. And the only way we can stand in the presence of a holy God is to have our sins forgiven. And the only way we can have our sins forgiven is through Christ and what He has done. Phenomenal presentation of the Gospel. I could not have said it better myself. Millions of people watched it, and I cheered inside. I said, yeah, they heard it. Now his answer was two parts. It was an answer to the theological philosophical question that was posed by Alan Combs, and it was the unsolicited presentation of the Gospel. The unsolicited presentation of the Gospel par excellence. Excellent job. You're a sinner. You need Christ. He's the only way to God. God. God loved you. He sent His Son. He died for you so that if you will trust in Him, you will have your sins forgiven. Perfect. It's that answer to the theological, philosophical question that went so, left so much to be desired. Friends, let me just lay all of our cards out on the table as Christians. Where did we ever get this notion that God can't take life? Where did we ever get the idea that a loving God would never send a natural disaster to do something, to accomplish a purpose? He's the giver of life. He can take what He gives and He needs to offer no justification to you or to me for doing it. He needs to offer no reason to you and I for what He has done that passes the test of our three pounds of sinful, depraved gray matter that rests between our ears. And since when did we become the final arbiter of all that is right and holy and just and good? As if to say this is my standard of goodness... And if this doesn't happen, then God must not be involved in it. Uh, God didn't cause this to happen. God didn't allow this to happen. God didn't allow this to happen? Tell that to Job. Oh, Job, God didn't allow this to happen. God didn't cause this to happen? What, God doesn't cause natural disasters? You ever read the book of Revelation? God doesn't cause natural disasters? So are we to assume then that this is the judgment of God, that this is an act of God and a judgment of God upon those people? Friends, we can't know that. We can't know if this is an act of God's judgment. Let's play out both sides of the coin, for instance. First, let's assume that it's not an act of God's judgment. Now, somebody will say, well, how can anything like that be anything other than an act of judgment? These are Muslim people, Muslim nations. God poured out His wrath and He judged 150,000 people. It must be an act of judgment. Listen. Not everything bad that happens, bad and I'm speaking in temporal human uh, sinful terms like you and I describe something bad, not everything bad that happens is an act of God's judgment. Once again, Joseph and Job. Job wasn't being judged. Well, why did God do that to Job? None of your business, Job. That's the point. I'm God. I can do it. I don't need to justify it to you or offer an excuse or tell you why I'm doing it. Were you there when I laid the foundations of the world? Were you there when I called the waters and the skies and the animals into existence? Do you feed the birds? Do you cause the grass to grow? Don't need to offer any excuses to you. That sounds harsh, doesn't it? We don't like that. And Joseph, is Joseph being judged? Come on. Get real. God was working out his eternal plan. To take those people into Egypt and to save their lives through the famine and to grow them into a nation and to bring them out by His mighty power and give them the land that He had promised to Abraham was all part of the plan. Bad things happened to Joseph, but Joseph wasn't being judged. So do we assume that it is a judgment then? Once again, we don't know that. Not necessarily. Uh, if it is, why does that pose a problem for us? If it is God's judgment. Doesn't God have the authority to take life? He's the giver of life. Doesn't God have the ability to send a natural disaster? But friends, the reality of it is, is whether God allowed it and caused it or whether God allowed the devil to cause it, it's the same thing. It's all under His providence and it's all under His sovereignty. And the comfort for you and I is not being able to explain His providential works and somehow articulate the mind of God on something. The comfort for you and I is to sit back in awe and say, what an awesome God. And His ways are past finding out and His mind I cannot understand, but I will rest in the fact that God is sovereign and that He allows these things to happen for a purpose and that He is working all things to my good and His glory and I will rest in that. That would have been a perfect answer. It doesn't matter whether God caused it or allowed it to happen. The fact is that it happened. And He foreknew it. He foresaw it. It is part of His plan. He is sovereign. He is providential. He is working it all out for our good and His glory. And I cannot explain that to you. And if I could explain the mind of God to you, friends, that is a God that is not worthy of your confidence or your trust, if you can understand Him. But the answer, God did not cause it, and God did not allow it to happen, presents to me a God that sits back on the sidelines and watches these things unfold and has to fold His hands. He can't do anything about it. Utterly powerless. And that kind of weak, impotent, powerless God is deserving of my reverence, my fear, and my trust? Come on. He can't stop the devil from making an earthquake, but He can stop the devil from dragging me to hell. He can't keep the devil from conjuring up a wave, but He can somehow save me from my sin, even though He can't save me from a wave. He sits back, unable to stop it. He didn't allow it. He didn't cause it. He's impotent and worries and sees it happen and thinks, oh man, what am I going to do now? That God is not worthy of our confidence or our trust. But a God who sovereignly in His providence and by His grace, who is a good God, allows all these things for a purpose. And the ultimate purpose is the good of His elect and the glory of His name that kind of a God, even though we cannot understand it fully or comprehend it fully, is worthy of our trust, our adoration, and our obedience. The powerless, weak God isn't. How different the whole story in Acts 12 would be if the early church thought that all of these events that had unfolded and broken loose upon them, God had not caused them, God had not allowed them, and that He was sitting in heaven wringing His hands over what was happening to Peter. You remember the scene? Herod Agrippa, he's had James killed, he's persecuting the Christians, he has launched a government orchestrated persecution on the church, James the Apostle has been martyred, the first Apostle, the only Apostle whose death is mentioned in the New Testament, he's been killed with the sword, and when Herod discerns that this was something that pleased the Jewish people, he endeavored to endear himself to the people, and so he had Peter arrested, and he had Peter put into prison and guarded with four squads of soldiers, that's Four uh, soldiers in each squad. Sixteen soldiers on rotation guarding Peter in Herod's high security wing of his prison. And Herod is waiting until after the feast is over when all of the Jews are in Jerusalem and he can parade Peter out in front of all of these people who have gathered to celebrate the feast. And now they have all of this time on their hands before they leave the city. And in order to get maximum benefit out of his little PR stunt, he's going to pull Peter out and have him executed. And this will... Send people over the top in their adoration of Herod. And the believers are doing what? Praying. Now if you had sat in that prayer meeting and you had asked the leader of that prayer meeting, hey, why does God allow this to happen? If God is all good and God is all powerful, then why is it that He has allowed James to be killed, Peter to be in prison, this persecution to start, and, and now Peter is going to be executed in only a few short days? How could God allow that to happen? Can you imagine the early Christians saying, hey, God didn't cause it. God didn't allow it. He's just sitting back and the devil's the one who's orchestrating this whole thing. Can you imagine them saying that? I can't imagine them saying that. If that is what they thought, they wouldn't have prayed. I mean, after all, if God can't stop it from happening, why pray once it happens? What can He do about it then? If He couldn't have kept it from happening, what makes you think He can do anything now to solve anything once it has happened? But we don't find them with that kind of lack of confidence. Instead, we find in verse 5 of Acts chapter 12, and you need to be there in your Bibles, we find in verse 5 of Acts chapter 12, so Peter was kept in prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently to God. They understood that God works all things for good. And they understood that whether the Lord was allowing Satan to do this, or whether the Lord was allowing Herod to do this, whatever the Lord was allowing to happen and directing to happen, He is the sovereign God who is in control of all things. And so they can come to Him and say, Here we are, Lord. Here is our situation. You knew it was coming, and we're asking You to do something about it. And Luke says that they were in prayer fervently for Peter. He uses a medical term which was used to describe the stretching of a muscle to its limit to its breaking point. And it's an adequate term and a right term for Luke to use because he's a medical doctor. And he uses that word to describe Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane where he sweat drops of blood. He was praying fervently to the Lord. It is persistent, active, involved, passionate, straining prayer. The church is gathered in a house and they are praying on behalf of Peter to the Lord. Why did they do that? Because they are resting in the providence and the sovereignty, and the control, and the love and grace of God. They're keeping in mind not only their circumstances, but also His character, His goodness, and exactly who their God is. And so they're praying. Now verse 6 is where we pick it up. On the very night when Herod was about to bring him forward, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and guards in front of the door were watching over the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared, and a light shone in the cell. And he struck Peter's side and woke him up, saying, Get up quickly, and his chains fell off his hands. Now what I want you to know is, notice at the beginning of verse 6, on the very night when Herod was about to bring him forward. Look at the timing of this deliverance. It was on the very night when Herod was about to bring him forward. The feast has come to an end. Herod has discerned on such and such a day, we'll bring him out in front of this crowd and we will try him and we will execute him. And so he waits until the middle of the night before his execution and before his trial. That is when this whole episode unfolds. Now how long has Peter been in jail? It must have been several days. He was arrested sometime before Passover or during Passover or during this seven day week that followed Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And Herod kept him in prison day and night, day and night, day and night, until the very last day. Now friends, what I want you to notice is how ironic that is. Couldn't God have delivered him the night before? Sure He could have. Couldn't God have delivered him two nights before? Sure He could have. Couldn't God have prevented Peter from being captured to begin with? Could have done that, couldn't He? But He allowed this to happen. I would say maybe even He caused this to happen. He instigated this whole thing and allowed it to unfold in His eternal plan and His eternal eternal decree so that He could manifest His glory and His grace to the people in the church. But God didn't do it the night before, two nights before, three nights before His execution. In the middle of the night before Peter's execution, that's when God does what He does. Folks, God is seldom early but never late. God is seldom early but never late. When it is darkest, that's when God's light shines the brightest. When it is as close as we can possibly get to deadline, that is when God comes through. It is when our need is the greatest that His supply is the fullest. And that is when He comes through. That's the way our God works. He kept His people trusting Him and praying to Him and resting in Him right up until the last minute. And then there's something in those verses that strikes me as, I don't know, funny, odd, uh, interesting. Do you see what it is? What's Peter doing? Sleeping. Are you kidding me? On the night before your execution, you're sleeping? How can you be asleep? And not dozing in and out, folks. He's sound asleep. The light shines in the cell when the angel appears, and he sleeps right through it. The angel has to strike him in the side. Peter, get up quickly. He is absolutely out of it, completely sound asleep. How can you be asleep on the night before your trial and the night before your execution? Friends, would this have described you? How different this is from us, right? Peter has a wife. Peter has a ministry. Peter may have children. The whole church looks up to him. There's so much that he has to do. Mission trips he's planned and things that need to be done in the body. He's not worried about any of that. You and I would be sitting in that cell, I would say losing sleep. Wide awake, wondering what's going to happen to my wife after tomorrow? What's going to happen to my kids after tomorrow? Who's going to take care of my family? Who's going to provide for their needs? What's going to happen in the church? How far-reaching is this persecution? Is it going to hurt to be cut to pieces with a sword? Is it going to hurt to have my head taken off? Am I going to be stoned like Stephen? What are they going to do to me? And on and on, our minds would be so active. Not Peter. Sound asleep. And the light comes on. Sound asleep. Peter? Get up. Get up quickly. The angel strikes him in the side. Wake up, Peter. He's just sound asleep. How could he do that? I think it's because Peter was trusting really and relying on two things. First, the promise of God. In John chapter 21, verse 18, John says that Jesus gave Peter a promise and told him about the manner of his death. Jesus said, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. but when you grow old, you'll stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Peter wasn't old. Jesus had given him a promise. When you grow old, that's when you'll die. Friends, I think it's as simple as that. Peter could have sat there and said, look, Jesus told me that when I grow old, somebody else is going to gird me and going to kill me. And here I am, 40, 45 years old, and that's not old. When I grow old, that's when I'm going to die. And He could rest in that. If Jesus said it, told me when I grow old, I'm going to die, I can rest in the fact that that's what He said and that's what's going to happen. I might as well go to sleep. There's no sense worrying about it. He was just simply resting in the providence and the sovereignty of God. Now, you say, Jim, that's all good and well for Peter, but Jesus gave me no promise about the day of my death. Oh, yes, He has. Psalm 139, He knows the contents of your days before there was one of them. In your book were written all of my days that have been ordained for me before there was yet one. He knows the day of your death. It's not going to take Him by surprise. And there's nothing that you can do to prolong that day. There's nothing that no amount of worrying that's going to add time to your life. And there's no amount of activity by sinful man that's going to cut it short. So if He knows the day of my death and all of my days that were ordained for me were written in His book before there was even one of them and I know that there's a set number and X is going to happen and I'm going to die right on schedule just as God knows it, then what should I worry about? What's to lose sleep over? Do I care if I die tomorrow in a car accident? I'm not going to lose sleep over it tonight. God knows whether or not that's going to happen. I'll still buckle my seatbelt and I'll still drive safely. But He knows the day of my death. There's nothing that can happen that's going to cut that short. But Peter can just rest. Hey, tomorrow's the day. Tomorrow's the day. Tomorrow's not the day. I'm not going to lose any sleep over it. Psalm 121. The author writes, I lift up my eyes to the mountains from where shall my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made the heaven and the earth and He will not allow your foot to slip. He who keeps you will not slumber Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not smite you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will protect you from all evil, and He will keep your soul. He who keeps you does not slumber or sleep. So if he's going to be awake all night, I'm not going to lose any sleep. Why should both of us lose sleep over a matter? You say, Jim, I can't just rest quietly in that. I've got to worry about it. No, you don't. You've got to just trust in the Word of the Lord and go to sleep. And don't worry about it because worrying is not going to change a single thing about it. David was a good example of this. He was run out of Jerusalem by his son Absalom. Absalom stood at the gate of the city and turned all the hearts of the men toward him, gained this following. Then he ran his father out of the throne, out of, the, uh, the ca- uh, out of his castle, his home, out of Jerusalem, and David was on the run and running from cave to cave and place to place, seeking solace and seeking uh, security from his son, who then wanted to have him killed. David, in Psalm 3, he writes this, "...O oh Lord, how my adversaries have increased..." And he's talking about his son. "...How my adversaries have increased, and many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul that there is no deliverance for him in God. But you, O oh Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the one who lifts up my head." I was crying to the Lord with my voice, and He answered me from His holy mountain. I lay down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustains me, and I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who set themselves against me. David said, my adversaries are many. They hunt for me. They hate me. They want to kill me. They set themselves against me. It's my own son. I cried out to the Lord. I laid down. I went to sleep and I woke up because the Lord sustains me. Why worry about it? Right? Peter's just simply trusting in the promises of God and resting in His providence and His sovereignty and His care and His goodness. But the second thing, he was also trusting in the performance of God. You see, Peter had been here before, and what happened? The angel came in the middle of the night and set him free. So Peter knows the Lord can do this. Peter knows that if the Lord doesn't want him in this prison, then there's no amount of troops, no amount of soldiers, no plan of Herod that can keep him there. Because Peter has been there before, in prison with the other apostles. And Acts chapter 5, the angel came in and let them loose and sent them out and said, go into the temple and preach. And so they went. So Peter knows the Lord has a good track record of faithfulness. The Lord has a good track record of dependability. We can rely upon Him. He's trustworthy. He's powerful to handle all this. So the Word says that He knows the day of my demise. He promised me I'm going to die when I'm old. I know He can deliver me if He wants to, so I'm going to go to sleep. And He goes to sleep. And the light shines. And the angel kicks him in the side. Listen, wasn't it Peter that said, cast all your anxieties on the Lord because He cares for you? He might as well have just added to that. Cast all your uh, anxieties on the Lord because He cares for you and go to sleep. Don't lose a wink over it. Just get your rest. Rest in God. Trust in His Word. Peter, get up. Get dressed. text says that Peter was told to gird up his robe, which meant to take the outer garment and to tuck it up into your belt to not impede your ability to walk or to run. Uh, Peter, quickly get up and gird up your robe and take your sandals and put them on. And Why did Peter have to be told to get dressed? Didn't he realize this was a jailbreak? No, he didn't. The text says he thought this was a vision, a dream. He thought this was something akin to what he saw on Simon's roof in Joppa. Remember the great white sheet and all the animals? Oh, another one of those. Another dream. Let's see what the Lord wants to teach me through this. So he has to be told to get up and his chains fall off and he gets dressed and girds everything up and the angel takes him outside the prison. Now the text says that there was a guard on his right hand and a guard on his left hand. He was chained to two guards and there were guards at, stationed in front of his cell outside of his door. Now I don't know if the angel just simply made Peter invisible or if the angel caused a deep sleep to fall upon the guards. We're not told how he did this. Just that when his chains fell off, Peter had time to get up and get dressed and gird himself up, put his sandals on, make himself presentable, put on his outer cloak, and they left the cell. And they went out past the first guard, past the second guard, and they approached that big iron gate that led from the prison in Herod's uh, Herod's, uh, palace there. The big iron gate that led from the prison, and that thing just swung open. The, The Greek word that is used there is the word from which we get our word automatically. It just automatically opened by itself, of its own strength, of its own power. And Peter the whole time thinks that he's seeing a vision. He's still a bit groggy. I mean, he's been sleeping soundly. He's been resting. And have you ever had one of those dreams where in the middle of your dream, you're dreaming that you realize it's a dream? Have you ever had a dream like that? You have a dream and somewhere in the middle of the dream, you say, hey, I know this is a dream. And if if it's a good dream, then you're saying to yourself, well, I want to stay asleep so that I can see how this whole thing plays out. That's the kind of thing that Peter thought he was having was this vision or this dream where he realizes in the midst of it that this is a vision or a dream. And so they make their way out through the gate and they stop at, the, at a turn off to a certain street and they go down that particular street and before long Peter is standing there and he's all by himself. The text says that the angel departed from him and he's alone waiting to see what the results of this dream are going to be. Is there something else that's supposed to happen now? And it says that Peter came to himself and realized It wasn't a vision. It wasn't a dream. This whole experience has been a deliverance, not a delusion. And so he realizes that the Lord has sent his angel to deliver me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jews were expecting, namely his execution. It's the middle of the night, and so he makes his way to a place which is a house owned by a lady named Mary who has a son named John, also called Mark. Mark. Uh, Peter apparently knows that that's where the church would meet on a regular basis. Uh, Maybe he knows or has been told or heard that the saints are gathered there and that they're praying in Mary's house for his deliverance. And so he makes his way to Mary's house. Now, just one interesting note about this character who's mentioned here, I think for the first time, John Mark. This is the same Mark who goes with Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. This is the same Mark who is Barnabas' cousin, Colossians 4, verse 10 tells us. So this Mary is... Barnabas's aunt uh, she this is the same mark who Peter calls his son in 1 Peter chapter 5 not in the physical siring sense of his son but in a spiritual sense my son mark this is the same mark who wrote the second gospel that bears his name under the tutelage of Peter under the direction of Peter mark is to Peter what Timothy was to Paul Peter is sort of mark's mentor his his um the guy that shapes him and molds him and the person who really poured a lot of time into Mark. That's this Mark. In his mom's house, in Mary's house, and I would assume that she's likely a woman of probably great uh, means. She has a house big enough for believers to meet in. So it wasn't just some hovel over in the corner of town. It was a large house where believers could meet. The church would regularly meet. It was a house that had an outer gate around the yard for protection. Not everybody could afford that. And she had a servant girl named Rhoda. I would think that she is likely a widow at this time because her husband's not mentioned anywhere in the narrative. So probably an older lady. She's Barnabas' aunt. Barnabas is a man, a full-grown man by this time. Possibly a widow. She has some means. The church is gathered there to her house. And Peter approaches the house. And then what happens from this point forward is comic relief in the book of Acts. And I think Luke intends for it to be sort of a comic relief. It's a little humorous. It's intended to be humorous as this whole thing unfolds. So Peter knocks on the door. Rhoda comes to the gate outside. Who is it? Now, you just don't open the gate to anybody, do you? You're being persecuted. Herod is rounding up Christians to put them into prison and to persecute them. So they are behind locked doors. They are someplace secure where the gate can be locked and they can hide back in there. And so that's what they're doing. And you didn't just open the door up to anybody. So she asks, who is it? Rhoda, it's Peter. Open up. And she does what you and I would do, but we would never admit that we would do. She leaves Peter at the gate, and in her excitement and her joy over the release of Peter, she rushes into where the other believers are praying. Peter is at the gate. Our prayers have been answered. God has delivered him. I don't know how it happened. I didn't ask him how it happened, but Peter's at the front gate. And they did exactly what we would do, but none of us would ever admit that we would do. With all of the faith that they could muster, they said to her, you're crazy. You're out of your mind. You're nuts. You flipped your lid. You're just a crazy servant girl. you got a screw loose. Now leave us alone so we can start praying for Peter. You interrupted our prayers for Peter. He's at the gate. No, he's not. He's in prison. You're crazy. No, I heard his voice. Well, we don't doubt that you were hearing voices. But it likely wasn't Peter's voice. Leave us alone. And Luke says that she kept insisting that it was Peter. And so they started to say over and over again, it was his angel. It was his angel. What do they mean by that? His angel. The Jews at that time had a patently unbiblical notion and kind of a crazy idea, not something that came from their Old Testament or anywhere else in Scripture, that every person born had a guardian angel. And that guardian angel had the ability to appear as that person, sort of as their double. That's what the Jews believed. So that's what they're saying is happening here. You probably heard Peter's voice, but it's Peter's angel. He's appearing as Peter's double to you outside the gate and talk to you. (laughs) What's striking about that is that they would rather believe a patently unbiblical, superstitious, irrational notion than to believe that God had answered their prayers and done what they had asked God to do. They take something that's patently unbiblical a superstition, an urban legend, some tradition that they have, some wacky belief that doesn't come out of their Old Testament, and they say, well, it must be that. They're absolutely certain that Peter's still in prison. And Rhoda keeps insisting to them. No, he's at the gate. Now by this time, I don't know if they had heard Peter out there knocking. And, and put yourself in Peter's position. You knock on the gate. Who is it? Rhoda, it's me. Peter, let me in. You hear scuffle, scuffle off. You thinking to yourself, how could you just open the gate? I just escaped from prison. There are guards in prison that were guarding me. They're going to notice I'm gone and they're going to come looking for me. They're not going to say, oh, Peter's gone. Let's go out for coffee. So they don't do that. They know that his time must be short. And she scampers away inside. And he's got to be saying to himself, she is crazy. She should have just let me in. She didn't do that. He continues to knock, probably quietly, lest he arouse the suspicion of the neighbors. He doesn't shout and he doesn't yell. Rhoda comes back and probably because she thought, well, if you're not going to believe me, you're going to say that I'm nuts. I'm going to go get him and I'm going to bring him in here and I'm going to show you that I'm not crazy. So she goes out and they open up the door and who is there? Peter. And the text says they were amazed. (sighs) That's what we'd been praying for. Look at that. Why are you amazed? How can you be amazed at that? Weren't you just praying for His release? But they didn't believe it. You're nuts. No, it must be His angel. And they finally get there. Lo and behold, it is Peter. And you can imagine the scene as somebody would shout out, Praise the Lord! And there's another, Hey, all right, Peter's here. Oh, and gasps and probably laughing and weeping and rejoicing over this answer to prayer when the reality finally set in. And the text says that Peter had to motion to them with his hands, be quiet, be quiet. Probably not wanting to arouse the suspicion of, old guards or the neighbors or anybody else that might suspect that something was going on there out of the ordinary. It is the middle of the night. People are sleeping in the neighborhood. So he quiets them down. And then Luke says that he explained to them in order all of the things that had happened to him. They wanted to know what had happened. And so Peter explains to them, here's what happened. I was chained up and everything that we've covered Peter goes over in great detail with them, encourages them. There's no reason for them to be amazed, and he wants them to understand. There's no reason for your amazement. There's no reason to be surprised that God would answer prayer. Here's what's happened, and here's how he answered the prayer. And then he gives them a simple instruction, and he says, tell James these things and the brethren. And then Peter left and went to another place. James is not the James that was executed in verse 2. That's James the apostle. This is James, the half-brother of the Lord Jesus. This is the James who wrote the book of James, This is the James who would later become what Paul would call a pillar in the church in Galatians 2.9. This is the James who in Peter's absence obviously took over some sort of a leadership position in the Jerusalem church. And Peter went underground. So far underground that it doesn't even appear that Luke knows where he went at this time. But he went to another place. Not wanting to endanger the believers. Not wanting to endanger his family. Peter simply disappears from the scene. And he goes to another place. He'll come back to Jerusalem after Herod's death because he's in Jerusalem in Acts 15 for the Jerusalem council. So Peter will come back out of hiding after Herod's dead. But for this time period, he goes underground and James begins to take over sort of a leadership position in the church. That's why Peter says, tell James and the rest of the brethren. Now friends, it's easy for you and I to kind of smirk at this and laugh at this and say, "These silly believers. But you and I have more in common with them than we care to admit, don't we? That's why I said it is. They do something that we would do, but we would never admit that we would do, and that is to be surprised when God answers prayer. If you have walked with the Lord any time at all, and had a prayer life with the Lord, and asked the Lord for some great things, then He has undoubtedly answered those great things, and you are surprised, and amazed. And your jaw drops open, and your eyes get buggy, and you say, wow, look what God did, I can't even believe it. And then the minute we say that, and the minute we experience that, we realize we shouldn't be amazed. Or we should be amazed that we're amazed because we shouldn't be amazed at all. This is what we prayed for. This is what we should grow to expect is God coming through on behalf of His people. You could probably come up with your own list of times and events, things where you have prayed for something, but I cannot help but just give you one illustration that is relevant to us and very recent for us as a body. Several years ago, most of you know the story, We first decided to start looking for land for a church in order to, we were looking ahead at the future, not just today and tomorrow and next week, but wanting to create a work in Kootenai and a ministry in Kootenai that would outlive all of us by generations in a facility that could minister to a town and a community that was growing in size and number and need. And we had our sights set on a third of an acre for $50,000. And the Lord dropped into our lap six acres in a better location for $30,000, which was half of its market value. That is what we had prayed for. And the very terms that we had discerned uh, and prayed about was the ones that was offered to us by the Lord. And we were amazed. Or were we? Well, we had prayed about it. But then when God answers X, Y, and Z, and it just it astonishes you. And we have the money to pay for it. Surprisingly enough, but then we needed money for a facility. And so we asked the Lord to provide for us $35,000 on a consecration Sunday. We decided we're just going to pray about it as a body. We're going to wait on the Lord and trust in Him and ask Him to do through us what we cannot do in and of ourselves. And so we prayed about that. We had our consecration body and we thought to ourselves, $35,000 is a big goal to set for a small body like ours over and above our regular giving as a consecration to the Lord for the new facility and it's only 10% of what would be considered a realistic bottom line budget number, how in the world are we going to come up with the other 90%? Let's try trusting the Lord. So we prayed about it. And if you were here, you know what happened. We offered our bread and fish to the Lord, and He multiplied it, and our offering was $36,000. And we were amazed at that. Surprised that the Lord would answer our prayers and glorify Himself in our midst. And honor his name. That's only 10% of what was realistically needed. Where's it going to come from? 90%? Well, let's try trusting in the Lord, waiting upon him, and praying. And then the Lord blessed us in such a way and to such a degree that it should forever remove all doubt in our minds and silence any skepticism that we might have of his ability to do beyond, exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or even think. He gifted us with a facility that's value, amazingly enough, was about what we would need to build a new facility and to cover that other 90%. And we were amazed. And so we said, Lord, we're going to sell it. If that's your will, then let it be sold and raise that money that way. And it sold. And we're amazed. And now we have our need supplied in abundance, perfectly, completely, in perfect timing not early and not late, just as the Lord wanted. Are we amazed? Kind of shocked, aren't we? The Monday after I signed those papers, Larry Nelson, the pastor from Out at Hope, he called me up, he asked me some questions, chit and small talk, and then he said, I got a question for you, how's things going with the Hope facility? I said, Well, I signed the papers last Thursday. It's over, it's done, the check is there, it's ready to be deposited after the first of the year. He said, well, do you mind if I ask you how much you got for it? I said, no, not at all. It was $418,000 and some change by the time all the dust settles. It was just silent at the other end of the phone. He said, praise God. He said, I count one of the greatest blessings of my life to have been involved in the transition of those facilities to be used to bless your church and your work. He said, the fact that those facilities could be turned into cash to build your new facility, he said, that blesses my heart, and I am so glad. And then he said, I have been more convinced, and our leadership has been more convinced every day that we did the right thing in turning those facilities over to Kootenai Community Church to be used for that work. And we just rejoice that we were able to be used as a blessing to bless you guys. Are we amazed? (laughs) Friends, it's not rank unbelief that these believers were guilty of. It's not rank doubting. They believed God was able to do that we believe that God is able to provide for us but yet there's always this cancer of unbelief that attaches itself to our prayers this little shadow of doubting that follows it all the way up to the throne of God and it sickens it it it, it pollutes it it weakens it and yet we say like the father in mark chapter 9 who when they brought his son to Jesus because he was possessed and the demon would cast him into the fire and into the water and attempt to kill him Jesus said to him if you believe if All things are possible if you believe. And the Father cried out to him, I believe, but help my unbelief. Have you ever been in that position? Lord, I believe X, Y, and Z. But in the back of your mind, there's this human element where you doubt, you're not quite certain, you waver. Is it really? Could it be? And then when God does the unbelievable, we're amazed. It's not rank unbelief. It's not bitter doubt or lack of faith. Friends, it is that human element that we believe and we trust God and sometimes our faith is not even as big as a mustard seed. And then when God comes through, we're amazed. And maybe we're just amazed that He does it for such weak, frail, cracked vessels like us. Maybe that's what amazes us. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank You for Your grace to us in Christ and that You are able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or even think. And thank You that You do the big things, that You come through in the darkest hour, that You are there for our greatest need. And we ask, Father, that You would give to us grace to be faithful and to have faith in You as our great God and awesome Savior, to do and provide and move exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we could ask or even imagine. We know that that is your ability, and we thank you that you have rebuked our lack of faith in so many ways recently and shown us just how awesome and glorious and gracious and good you really are. Thank you that we can rest in you who does all things for your glory and our good, and that you are our providential, sovereign, and awesome God. And we commit ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen.